0: Hello and welcome to Oxford Policy Pod. I'm your host, Sruti Palneapin. Less than two weeks ago, US President Joe Biden took office, and on his first day, he signed an executive order rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement. By doing so, he signaled to the international community that the US is ready to make tackling climate change a priority. While the Paris Agreement is a momentous treaty due to its ability to create international consensus, many have questioned whether those efforts are enough. The Paris Agreement takes a bottoms-up approach, requesting that member countries determine and submit their own nationally determined contributions, also referred to as NDCs, with the overall goal of limiting global warming to well below two degrees Celsius. Yet, current pledged carbon emissions reductions have so far fallen short, 2020 was an important year in the implementation of the agreement as it was the year where countries were expected to pledge emissions reductions that would be bold and ambitious such that additional temperature increases would be prevented. So far, the European Union, Canada, New Zealand and South Korea, among others, have pledged to reach net zero by 2050. Even China announced it intended to reach net zero by 2060. Now with the U.S. back into the agreement after being largely absent for four years under former President Donald Trump. What can we expect from their nationally determined contribution? Will it be meaningful to effectively tackle climate change? And who's going to pay for climate actions globally? To look at these questions and more, we have a fantastic lineup of guests joining us today. Welcome to Oxford Policy Pod.
1: I think that it is important to question the narrative around US leadership that it's often perpetuated that they are sort of at the forefront of pushing forward ambition on climate change.
2: We really do need that constructive engagement uh, from the U.S. or the world won't be able to move at the pace and the scale it needs to to avoid the the worst impacts of climate change.
3: Although we are the least responsible for warming our planet, we are at the front lines as climate change affects every aspect of our lives.
2: They're in a pretty big credibility hole, uh, and I think they know it. So uh, I think they need to do the the hard work uh, to begin digging out of that hole.
0: Our first guest today is Brooke Dambacker. Brooke has been working on the UN climate change negotiations since 2015. Her role is focused on providing legal advice and communication support to the least developed countries group throughout the negotiations that followed the adoption of the Paris Agreement. Currently, Brooke is a master's student at the Blavatnik School of Government. To hear more, I'm going to turn it over to Oxford Policy Pod correspondent Frederick Saint-Jean, who spoke with Brooke on this topic.
1: Hi, Brooke. Welcome to the Oxford Policy Pod. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
4: So first, can you tell us a little bit more about your experience as an advisor to the Least Developed Countries Group at the UN Climate
1: Negotiation? Yeah, so the Least Developed Countries Group, or what is often referred to as the LDC Group, is um, made up of the world's poorest countries as classified by the UN. So based off poverty, economic vulnerability, human resource indicators, and there are 46 countries within this group and they negotiate together as a block. Um, So these countries are among those that have done the least to contribute to climate change, but um, are being hardest hit by its impacts. So what would you say were their main concerns and priorities? So their goals are really multifold. One major priority is seeing a rapid reduction in greenhouse gas emissions to limit global temperatures below that 1.5 degree threshold that's talked about a lot. And another major priority is securing support from the international community. So the, the LDCs, as well as many other developing countries are really in desperate need of resources so that they can adapt to the effects of climate change as impacts are intensifying, they can address loss and damage that is already exceeding um, many of these countries' abilities to cope and adapt, um, and also reduce their own greenhouse gas emissions so that they can continue to develop, but in a way that doesn't rely on fossil fuels. So. It's really um, their positions are really grounded in, you know, matters of justice, but also purely practical matters. Like to tackle climate change, it is those countries that have developed prosperous economies using fossil fuels that now need to share this wealth with those countries that are facing the challenge of now needing to lift their people out of poverty without replicating those dirty development pathways and needing to address the consequences of climate change that they've done little to contribute to.
4: And how has it been going on the front of getting support from other states, so on loss and damages, mitigation funds? So
1: what are the, the progress that have been achieved in the past years? Well, it's it's a it's a real ongoing challenge. I think in recent years, what, what we're seeing is this widening gap between sort of where the negotiations are and the matters that are being negotiated and what we actually need to see happen. So I think finance is quite a good example of that. Um, we have... The negotiations, which are often talking about this 100 billion goal that countries are far from meeting, but the goal was that by um, 2020 we would have the provision of 100 billion dollars per year that would be um, for developing countries to, you know, address climate change and and deal with its impacts. We have many, many, many developing countries have put forward their plans, and they have numbers in there of this is how you know how much money is going to be needed to implement our plans. Um, and I was involved with some work that added that up and that um, exceeds uh, $4 trillion to implement these um, contributions. That's that's not a yearly sum. That's not saying that all comes from the international community, but that gives you a sense of the scale of the issue that we're dealing with and the numbers that are being discussed in the negotiations. So bridging that gap between sort of our political realities and the realities of the climate crisis is um, something that is an ongoing challenge and we really need to have have them align.
4: So from your experience, what was the role of the U.S. in encourages countries to be more or less ambitious than in terms of contribution to the mitigation of climate change?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I like the way you put the question, because I think that it is important to question the narrative around U.S. leadership, that it's often perpetuated, that they are sort of at the forefront of pushing forward ambition on climate change. Um, We have the Paris Agreement that I think was very rightly heralded as a diplomatic success success, and was the result of some very skilled diplomacy. But um, in many respects, it marked a weakening of the UN climate change regime when you look at the actual rules within it. And I think the the, um, nationally determined contributions that we were talking about just before are a really good example of that. Um, You have that really dangerous gap between the temperature goals that the countries have set in the Paris Agreement And the plans that countries have actually put forward to reduce their emissions and one of the key reasons for those weak rules in the paris agreement can be traced back to the constraints of the us you know we had a political situation in the us at the time of the negotiation of the paris agreement where the only avenue for the us to ratify was by president obama signing an executive order and this meant it couldn't have new substantive obligations that would have required congressional approval as biden enters office i think it's we should be careful to not equate the US rejoining the Paris Agreement as this like reclaiming of some sort of mantle of climate leadership. Um, that I think is more what we should see as like the bare minimum. It's like you've
4: anticipated my next question. So do you <laughs> feel that the US being back in the negotiations so with the Biden administration will lead to countries to go further than they would have been uh, in their 2020 pledges, which are kind of now 2021 pledges.
1: With the Biden administration re-entering, that's also a really immense opportunity for them to sort of have a change of narrative, change the pattern and, and show some genuine leadership that um, that I think the U.S. is as a major, as the world's largest economy, we really need to see. And I think what we now need to see is that this translates into the Biden administration re-entering the Paris Agreement, and submitting uh, a new contribution that really does represent the US's fair share. It really does represent the US's um, both responsibility for um, causing climate change and its capacity that it has as such a large economy to, to respond. And I hope that that's what will inform um, the next steps that the US takes. So we really do see the US leading the world into a path where we have um, an, equitable, an equitable transition and um, have a limit of warming of 1.5 degrees to protect countries like the LDCs and others.
4: Brooke, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, it was so interesting talking with you. I think we could have gone gone for a long time. But uh,
1: yeah, I really appreciate <laughs> Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you, Frederique, for that insightful interview. We'll take a look at the U.S.'s plans in detail in just a bit. But before we do that, we'll hear from someone in a small island nation. Present trends of climate change indicate that the regions in which small island states are located are especially vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, not only from the increased temperatures and levels of sea rise already being observed in these regions, but also due to the unique economic and social characteristics of island nations sectors that often make up the bulk of national GDP of an island country, such as tourism, fisheries, and agriculture, are largely reliant on conducive environmental conditions and are particularly vulnerable to climate change. I'm now going to turn it back over to Frederique to introduce our next guest, who's going to speak to some of these unique issues facing small island nations and share her experience at home in the island of Tonga.
4: Our next guest is Elsie Fukufuka. Elsie is currently a senior public officer in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the government of Tonga, where she's been working for 15 years. Elsie is reading for the Master of Public Policy at the Blavatnik School of Government, but is currently talking to us remotely from Tonga in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Indeed, the Kingdom of Tonga is an archipelago of 170 islands located in the Polynesian area. It has a total population of 120,000 people. As many other countries located on isolated islands, it is likely to be one of the most impacted by climate change, extreme catastrophic events, and the rising of sea level. Hi, Elsie.
3: We're really happy to have you with us today. Thank you, Frederic, and to you and the podcast team for inviting me to join this important discussion and to give voice to our small Pacific islands on this platform. I want to start by asking you about how small island countries like
4: Tonga are experiencing climate change at the moment, and about the detrimental effects you are
3: already suffering. Frederick, this issue draws very close to home because in Tonga we see, quite literally, the impacts of climate change on a daily basis. Although we are the least responsible for warming our planet, we are at the front lines as climate change affects every aspect of our lives. So the impacts are not just on the natural environment. Our economy and our livelihoods suffer incredibly. One hurricane can wipe out entire villages and drive back years of development. Plantations completely destroyed threaten food security. And it's not unusual for us to be without electricity or running water for weeks after a cyclone hits. This is not just the case in Tonga. These adverse climate change impacts are a reality for small island developing states across the Pacific and the globe.
4: That is terrible and absolutely terrifying. I imagine that because of all these very serious detrimental impacts, Tonga has followed very closely the negotiation regarding the Paris Agreement. Can you tell us a little bit more about the involvement of Tonga in the negotiations?
3: Sure. So Tonga's active participation in the COP process and in the Paris negotiations has grown significantly. From a single representative in 2001 to 2010, to a delegation of around 16 to Paris in 2015 and we had our largest delegation of around 39 to the last COP in Madrid in 2019. Attending these international meetings of such scale is very expensive for us, but this just goes to show how crucial this issue is for us and how critical it is for the global community to take increased and enhanced action.
4: 2020 was a really important year for the Paris Agreement because countries were pledging their nationally determined contribution, which in fact will truly indicate us whether the international community stands a chance to fight climate change.
3: So what is Tonga's perspective on NDCs? In terms of NDCs, Tonga and other Pacific Island countries are committed to delivering more ambitious NDCs. In fact, in September 2020, we reviewed our 2015 intended NDCs and provided Recommendations for more enhanced 2020 NDC. In spite of this, let's make it clear that NDCs are not only country commitments on mitigation measures, they also include adaptation and loss and damage. However, unlike the NDCs of developed countries, the NDCs for small island developing states is conditional. That is, every commitment stated within the NDC will only be achieved through external funding. On funding adaptation, the long standing debate on funding. Um, initiatives has never truly been about how much is required, but more so on what does or does not fall under adaptation. Over the past decade, compensatory measures for permanent loss and damage continues to be the most contentious debate within the UNFCCC negotiations. And on top of all of this, we continue to call for limiting warming well below 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels through higher mitigation ambitions to ensure our survival. Interesting. And
4: how have these demands been received so far by the international
3: community? I know that for loss and mitigation, as you mentioned,
4: it has been quite contentious. And what do you think will be the impact of the U.S. re-entering the Paris Agreement?
3: You know, Frederick, to be honest, change continues to be extremely slow, considering it has now been five years since the adoption of the Paris Agreement. The Paris rulebook really is the focus as it sets up how parties will go about implementing the articles of the Paris Agreement. At COP25 in Madrid in 2019, we failed to significantly deliver on completing the Paris Rulebook, especially in the areas of finance and loss and damage. On the United States, we find it very important that powerful countries show commitment to climate change, and it was historical that the United States and the global community came together in Paris. The US re-entering the agreement won't necessarily entail immediate impact on how fast or slow our priorities are addressed, as they will still be looking at how to balance the need for the rise, to prevent the rise in global temperature in conjunction with maintaining a sound and stable economy. So the significant difference between developed and developing, particularly small nations, is balancing the economies of the developed nations against the survival of developing nations. We look to countries like the United States and other large emitters to take responsible leadership and commit to tackling the climate crisis. The re-entry of the United States is crucial as it will be an indication to the global community and those of us in the front line that it is committed to the Paris Agreement, that it takes account of its role in this crisis, which we hope will be in the form of more ambitious action to address these issues that we are grappling with. And this was so interesting and
4: enlightening. Thank you so much for being with us and for bringing the much needed perspective of vulnerable countries like Tonga into this conversation. I wish you really the best of luck for COP26 this year. I truly hope that state will rise to the challenge of bringing forward much more ambitious policies to finally tackle the climate emergency.
0: Thank you, Elsie, for sharing your unique experiences and that incredibly powerful message. So, what happens next? Can countries like Tonga count on the US for support that's so desperately needed? Will the U.S. develop more ambitious actions to address these challenges that are especially salient to the most vulnerable communities? On January 20th, the world watched the change of leadership in the White House as President Biden took the oath of office and quickly rejoined the Paris Agreement. But was this a political action or one in which will result in meaningful policy changes in the U.S. and elsewhere? To look at some of these questions, we go to our next guest, Brendan Guy. He is the lead strategist at the Natural Resources Defense Council, an international nonprofit with the mission of protecting the world's natural resources, public health, and the environment. Brendan's work as a strategist has him focusing on enhancing climate ambition from major emitters, primarily through the Paris Agreement and bilateral engagement. He also coordinates strategy to advance global conservation objectives. Brendan has taught global climate policy at Oxford University's Blavatnik School of Government and American University's School of International Service. Brendan, thank you for joining us.
2: It's Ruthie, it's uh, really wonderful to be on the pod with you.
0: Yes, and can you tell me a little bit about your role at Natural Resources Defense Council?
2: My work really entails uh, developing and executing strategies to raise climate ambition And to accelerate action from key major emitting countries, and that's primarily the US, uh, China, and India. And really trying to do that into greater alignment with the climate change science and with the goals of the Paris Agreement.
0: Yeah, and I know that you've also written extensively about the impact on the international community when the U.S. withdrew from the Paris Agreement and really this need for American leadership to address this defining issue of our time. So can you tell me a bit about how the international community has responded to this lack of American climate leadership that existed under the Trump administration?
2: Yeah, so I I think, uh, you know, after the withdrawal, the the initial response from the international community was was swift and it was actually almost deafening. uh, And basically everyone uh, in the world said we're moving ahead without you, uh, U.S. federal government, and now you're alone on the world stage on one of the defining issues of our time. Uh, So it was really a, a testament to how committed everyone was to moving forward. Uh, And despite some of the efforts of the Trump administration, there was no other country that uh, decided it was going to follow the U.S. and withdraw from the Paris Agreement, which, again, is really a testament to its resilience, uh, but also really to the leaders who stepped up to uh, defend its integrity. Uh, but I think what almost everyone would tell you is that the international response uh, wasn't as powerful and it wasn't as organized when the U.S. wasn't at the table helping to drive things forward. So we really do need that constructive engagement uh, from the U.S. or the world won't be able to move at the pace and the scale it needs to to avoid the, the worst impacts of climate change.
0: Yeah. And I guess this now is a new era, given that Biden has signed back into the Paris Agreement. So. What do you envision with this new Biden-Harris administration in terms of how they are going to provide leadership on the issue of climate change?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very exciting to think about the potential and in terms of their role uh, on this issue. Uh, I think just to start with, uh, they're building what they're calling themselves a climate administration. Where climate is infused into the leadership and the priorities of every single federal department, and the, the people that they've been putting into some of those roles are, are really, you know, top notch. A lot of them were screened for their climate credentials and their ambitions. Uh, so I think you know they're starting off from a, a really solid foundation. In terms of the the policy side, um, I think uh, you know any kind of leadership starts with getting uh, their domestic house in order. I think that's uh, you know task number one. So I think uh, given the current moment and ev- everything happening uh, in terms of COVID, that is really gonna be primarily uh, first through uh, economic recovery. Uh, so I think you'll see them really prioritizing investments in clean energy, clean energy infrastructure, creating good paying clean energy jobs that promote social equity uh, for workers, for disadvantaged communities. So that will be kind of a really central push to really get a lot of those investments flowing um, towards climate action. And then I think uh, you know, beyond that and other legislation that they might be pushing for, I think they're not going to wait. They're going to start to move through all the, the authority that President Biden has already to start regulating on things like efficiency for vehicles, on uh, you know, clean electricity standards other standards, like for buildings or for methane, and really using whatever powers uh, and whatever tools the federal government has to push that agenda as quickly as possible and not really waiting for Congress uh, to to come together, uh, but also pushing them the entire way. And then obviously, once those pieces come together, uh, you can more readily translate that to the international realm as well, too. So you can talk about stepping up ambition into greater alignment with uh, the 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, goal, which hopefully we'll be uh, seeing on the road to to COP26 in Glasgow this November. Uh, really stepping up uh, international climate finance to help support this clean energy transition, uh, and really uh, figuring out how the U.S. can phase out how it's been supporting fossil fuels overseas. Uh, And instead, really ramp up efforts to promote uh, clean energy and, and clean growth first.
0: I want to touch on a point you noted earlier about the U.S. having to prove itself. And how do you believe that the U.S. is now going to be perceived by other countries? Are they going to be tainted because of the previous administration? Or do you really think they will emerge as this strong leader on this global front?
2: yeah I think there there's no question they're in a pretty big credibility hole, uh, and I think they know it, so uh, I think they need to do the the hard work uh, to begin digging out of that hole and I think you know that starts with uh, you know setting a really strong example at home through some of the you know changes in uh, domestic legislation, domestic policies that they're starting to do. Uh, And then I think it really starts with reengaging partners, again, with that humility and kind of on a more level basis and saying, you know, hey, we'd love to learn from you, understand what you've been doing for these last four years and pushing this agenda forward and then figure out where they can come and help support that agenda and to really take it to the next level.
0: So on this challenge that Biden now faces, he was obviously there when the U.S. first entered the Paris Agreement back in 2015 under the Obama administration But now he's coming back into this agreement at a very different time and can't have the same mindset. Um, We know over the past years under Trump, the U.S. has taken a backseat on climate negotiation, while other countries have really set ambitious carbon reduction targets. And notably, China's President Xi Jinping announced in September that China would aim to reach peak emissions before 2030 and be carbon neutral by mid-century. So, Brendan, how do you envision a Biden administration responding to this greater international pressure? Should we expect increased NDC targets from the U.S.? Uh, What do you think
2: there? I think that is uh, 100 percent something we'll be seeing, uh, you know, well before November and even possibly by the the UK uh, G7 that they're hosting uh, in Cornwall this June. uh, You know, it could be an even more accelerated timeline well before the COP. I think the the key question uh, is not you know if, but you know what is the level of ambition that would be in that national target, that nationally determined contrib- contribution or NDC that you mentioned. Uh, there's a, a lot of analysis that's being uh, undertaken right now by groups like ourselves and you know others, but I think there's there's generally a consensus that uh, you know to be on a pathway consistent with net zero emissions by 2050, which is what President Biden committed to during during his campaign. It will have to be somewhere, you know, at least 40%, if not closer to 45, 50% reductions by 2030. At the last point, since you mentioned China, uh, I think President Xi's commitment to achieve net zero emissions by 2060 was a really very welcome step. Uh, but in, or, in order to align that as well too, uh, with the, the net zero global trajectory, they, they need to do even more in the near term than, than they've committed to, uh, you know, peaking their emissions well before 2030.
0: Yeah. And Brendan, can you elaborate on what we can really expect from China? Is it notable that while they announced their commitment to reach net zero admissions by mid-century, that they've not formally issued their NDCs?
2: So, yeah, I, I think there's there's no doubt that China and India are paying very close attention to what the U.S. Uh, and the Biden administration is thinking and is likely to put forward on the table. In terms of its own ambition and I think there's there's certainly speculation that that was maybe one of the reasons uh, that China uh, did not submit its official NDC by the end of last year as, as many other countries did but that they were uh, you know holding off just to, to understand uh, you know what kind of engagement they might have with the Biden administration uh, I think you know similarly for India, uh, I think, uh, you know, there's there's been conversations about what they might be able to to bring to the table. But uh, I think, uh, you know, in terms of actually having uh, something that's a little bit more concerted, I think, uh, you know, those are probably conversations that will happen quite quickly. I know the, the Biden administration, uh, you know, seems very uh, you know, interested in having conversations uh, with India about climate and clean energy. Uh, Biden's nominee for Secretary of State in his in his hearing before Congress. Uh, earlier this week, uh, said as much uh, during during his during his hearing that they really want to prioritize climate and clean energy in the relationship with India. So I think there has been a little bit of a wait and see uh, approach, but I think uh, now that they're getting in place and starting to have some of those conversations, uh, I imagine things will will start to to move a little bit more quickly.
0: Yeah, and you just touched on how the politics are really playing into all of this. The Democrats do now control the House and the Senate, and as you mentioned, that dynamic could potentially give Biden this license to pursue more ambitious and bold targets than would have otherwise been possible. But are you worried that the narrow Senate margin might still constrain him, as he'll still need the support of conservative Democrats and likely some Republicans to really get things passed?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's no question that having majorities in both the Senate and the House uh really gives a boost uh to Biden's climate agenda. Um it it, it was an uphill battle already, the the hill is slightly less steep, but it, it's still uh it's still an, an uphill slog. Uh and I think uh exactly as as you mentioned, uh you know, you will really have to uh bring a broad tent of people in Congress on board, you know, from the, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's of the world to so the kind of Joe Manchin's who are the, you know, fairly centrist uh, Democrats uh, from, from, uh, you know, representing a lot of coal constituencies um, who uh, obviously have a lot of interest in making sure that if there is, you know, if, if there is this accelerated transition to clean energy that it's done in a just and equitable way.
0: Sabrina, I want to now turn to this report that you recently co-authored, laying out a vision for how President Biden can make good on his promise to, quote unquote, use every tool of American foreign policy to address climate change. And those are his words from a February 2020 Vox article and the blueprint that you all wrote, An International Climate Change Agenda for the Next U.S. Administration includes several recommendations with details around diplomacy, investments, and resiliency. And I want to ask you specifically about those diplomacy tools we can expect Biden to use. Because as you know, in your recent piece for NRDC, the majority of the international climate tools have centered around using carrots for financial investments and technical assistance to promote greater action. However, you also noted that it might be time to use not only carrots, but sticks for climate action. So can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by this and whether we can really expect a Biden-Harris administration to impose international consequences, say other countries do not increase their climate ambitions?
2: Yeah, so essentially what this group of experts is saying is that if climate change is truly a core foreign policy priority of the United States, as President Biden has said it is, then it should be treated uh, as such. And that includes using the full suite of tools in the toolbox to address the challenge of climate change. Uh, And that definitely includes using tools that have not been used as much in the past, um, including uh, ones that may have a little bit of a harder edge to them. Uh, So for example, Uh, That could include using the U.S.'s trade leverage uh, to say it's only going to negotiate trade deals with countries that have strong climate commitments and a record of actually, uh, you know, at least trying to implement those commitments. And there's a precedent for this type of approach. Um, For example, the EU has threatened to end trade negotiations with Brazil and also with Australia if they left the Paris Agreement. Uh, This was several years ago. Uh, So that's one example. Uh, A related example is the U.S. could say, We're going to join with our partners, potentially the European Union, and to say any goods accessing our market will be charged a kind of a a fee if they have a certain carbon intensity or they're above a certain carbon intensity. The European Union has uh, proposed this approach and are are going down the road to to actually look at what it entails. The United States uh, has you know, propose something like that as well, too, during uh, President Biden during the campaign phase. So whether they take, uh, you know, some of those types of trade approaches or other approaches that uh, are a little bit more kind of hard edged, uh, this is the type of approach that the U.S. takes for other foreign policy priorities, whether that's human rights, nuclear proliferation, wherever it sees, uh, you know, its interest as being really at stake, it does use this full suite of tools
0: yeah, I guess with all these options on the table, we'll only know in the coming months what they definitely do decide to move forward with. And as we wrap up today, I want to ask you what you say to critics who state that the Biden-Harris agenda and climate action is either too ambitious, unrealistic, or won't be accomplished during their tenure. When you hear remarks like that, what do you respond
2: yeah well, the, the first thing to say is that for, for those who care about climate change, which uh, really should be all of us, uh, is that there's really no such thing as being too ambitious. Um, given the daily impacts uh, we're seeing from climate change, the effects it's having on people's health, on their pocketbooks, uh, on you know government budgets around the world, uh, it's certainly better to be on the more ambitious on more ambitious side rather than the, the alternative of being too timid. Uh, so I think what you would say, if it's, you think it's overly ambitious or can't happen during their tenure, is that you need to, to then work on changing the politics of the possible. And so I think you, you know a lot of people observed what happened during the presidential campaign when especially young people and advocates pushed uh, then candidate Biden to elaborate an even more comprehensive climate plan than he had initially put out uh, and really, really uh, you know, played a significant role in terms of making that happen. And similarly, now uh, you know, that he is taking office, uh, I think that pressure needs to be kept up, uh, both to uh, you know, keep his commitments, but maybe even to go further. Uh, and it's not just the administration and, and uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris, but it's certainly you know, Congress where a lot of this is gonna uh, you know, fail or succeed and pushing uh, elected representatives to make them understand that uh, you know, this agenda is something that they're gonna be held accountable for. When they're not supporting it, and it's it's something that they are going to get uh, you know positive support for when they actually do support it, uh, and that it's something that really matters deeply to their constituents, and, it's, and again especially to young people, uh, you know, activists, frontline communities who have been so active and so instrumental on on these issues. So uh, yeah, again, I think it's just the, the power of people from all walks of life. Uh, agitating for for change is the only way we're going to move quickly enough to actually get a handle on the the challenge of climate change.
0: Definitely be watching to see what this administration does, as you said, especially around the issue of climate change. But Brendan, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your insights and talking to us about this really important subject. We really appreciate it.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you for joining us on this episode of OPP as we got to discuss an important issue affecting communities all over the globe. To keep up with the latest, be sure to subscribe to Oxford Policy Pod wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media. The executive producer for this season of OPP is Leanne ryan Hume, and this episode was produced by Jessica Creechie, edited by Alicia Aslan, and researched by Frederick St. Jean. We hope you'll join us again in two weeks as we take a look at the debate over free
3: speech and social media.